this is swordplay. Alex, a Chesterfield, Virginia man wearing an I Love Jesus hat, broke into a local church, tore pages out of a Bible, <clears throat> and spray painted the walls. Uh, well, uh, you know, Nick, honestly, I thought, I thought they would think it was funny. I'm sorry. What? That's that my bad. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, this happened at the Iron Bridge Baptist Church. Early reports are saying that this man spray-painted Mormon's rule, but that's unconfirmed. That's unconfirmed. Uh, I didn't have time, but I was going to continue it by saying Jehovah's Witnesses drool. <laughs> um, also, I need my hat back. I dropped it on the way out. If you could mail that to me, I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Just stick that in the mail. Yes, and we are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, the other part of this tandem, the preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. On this episode of Swordplay, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Nick, we're finishing up the book of Philippians. A lot of good stuff in here. If you hadn't uh, read Philippians 4, go ahead and read it. Read it a couple of times. Read the whole book if you're listening to this podcast because we're asking questions that you need to be familiar with the text to uh, get a grasp on. And we're also building on top of questions that we've asked in previous episodes. So read the whole book, listen to the previous episodes, come finish the book of Philippians with us today. Nick, what's in store? Well, we got, I mean, there's such a rich text here. Of course, you got the the stuff about worry in verses 6 and 7. Um, you've got uh, the secret there in verse 12. Uh, of course, verse 13, which everybody placards everywhere. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. we got a lot of good stuff on the docket today. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that should be, uh, put that on the side of my coffee mug. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. And then like in parentheses, like the message version with caffeine. With caffeine. <laughs> Well, what's the first question today, Nick? We'll start off there in verse 1 with uh, Paul. He talks about his crown. Uh, Let me get there. There it is. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Um, Alex, how are the Philippians Paul's crown? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, similar to the language Paul uses in earlier verses about wanting the prize, not running in vain. Uh, The continued steadfastness and faith of the Philippians goes to Paul's credit, just as we'll see in this chapter that the work of Paul that the Philippians help with and provide means for, that goes to the Philippians' credit. So there's a reward for the work that we do now as Christians, Uh, not the gift of salvation, but something beyond the gift. What do you think, Nick? This is a recurring theme in Paul's epistles, this idea of running running well, running in vain. And earlier in the book of Philippians, back in chapter 2, Paul had talked about being proud in the day of Christ that uh, he did not run in vain. That's the language he uses there. Run in vain because he sees these Christians holding fast to the word of life. And so, their steadfastness would indicate that he had not run in vain, but had run and won the victor's crown. I'm, I'm with you 100%. Paul wants that prize for sure. 
That's right. And that crown is the uh, Greek word Stephanos, right? Not to be confused with the diadem, which would be the ruler's crown. That's right. Yeah. So we get to wear the Stephanos, but Christ gets to wear the diadem. Uh, Nick, verse 2, who are Yodia and Suntike? So these are two Christian women. Everything we know about them is in this uh, single verse. Uh, Yodia, her name means fragrance. The unfortunate thing is, it seems, she's not spreading the fragrance of Christ since she's involved in a divisive dispute with her sister in Christ. Oh, man, Syntyche. Yeah, that's right. Well played. Um, <laughs> Syntyche's name means good luck, and some suggest that these ladies may have hosted rival house churches, one Jewish, the other Gentile. That's all mere speculation. Uh, because we know precious little about what exactly uh, these women were involved in, what, who they were. But what we do know is that Paul earnestly pleads with these two women to agree in the Lord, there at the end of verse 2, uh, agree in the Lord with one another, uh, build a bridge and get over it. That's, a, by the way, a powerful principle for today. All Christians are to agree in the Lord. And so when you get into a situation where you are at odds with your brother, you need to work through that either individually or, uh, as we'll see here, there were some brothers in the church who were supposed to help these women get through this. So uh, agree in the Lord. That's, uh, again, we know their names, but we don't know exactly what their dispute is. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I was looking at the original language here and the word urge is used twice in the Greek in this one verse. So he says, Yodia, I urge, Suntike, I urge. Uh, you can almost picture him talking to him like little kids, like, Yodia, I'm talking to you. And Suntike is like, yeah, that's right. And he's like, no, no, Suntike, I'm talking to you too. That's right. <laughs> so he says, you need to live in harmony. That's one word in the original language, just the Greek phroneo, and it means to think or to set one's mind on. So Paul seems to strategically save this exhortation for the end of the letter, having already laid the foundation for the command in chapter 2, where he says, uh, if you have any of these things with one another, fellowship in the Spirit, all of these things in Christ, then regard one another as more important than yourselves. So, yeah, Yudia, Suntike, not a whole lot known there. But we get to verse 3, we get another name dropped, Clement. Nick, who is Clement? Yeah, uh, so kind of like Syntyche, everything we know about him is in this verse as well. Uh, Unless, of course, we say that he's the guy who wrote 1 Clement, the apostolic father uh, who wrote that uh, epistle. In which case, this guy goes on to leadership positions in the church in Rome, even being the guy who writes that epistle to the church in Corinth. That's um, my take. What do you say? Yeah, I'm going to riff on that for a minute because I already think that Paul is currently in Rome under his first imprisonment when he's writing this letter. Right. So uh, if this is that same Clement, then Clement could be there in Rome as well with Paul. That matches up uh, with this Clement then being the same Clement who wrote first Clement uh, categorized under the letters of the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, That letter, first Clement, by the way, it's written from the elders in Rome, from the church in Rome, to the elders in Corinth, the church in Corinth. Uh, Interesting note there, the elders in Rome don't say, hey, we have the Pope, we're in charge, listen to us. None of that is in the letter at all. Right. So that... They they appeal to the gospel, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Right, they appeal to the gospel. They really... 
they don't have the authority to tell Corinth what to do, but they just in love appeal to them. So uh, it says that these women, they helped Paul, but they also helped Clement and several other laborers who worked to spread the gospel. And so that may indicate back to verse two, that these women, Yodia and Suntike were wealthy, that they provided funds for these men. Uh, at any rate, I've read First Clement. I personally think it's a good letter. I think everyone should read it. In fact, it may be contemporary with Paul's letters. Uh, and then on the side note, there's a second Clement in the Apostolic Fathers. I don't think that letter is written by the same guy. I think it's a completely different author and a completely different time in which it was written. So that's my little riff on the Apostolic so, Fathers. Just for clarification, they didn't have a pope in Rome at that time? <laughs> uh, it, if you read First Clement, you will get no uh, flavor of papacy whatsoever, which is pretty interesting because it's the, it's the elders in Rome. Huh. So there you go. How about that? How about that? At any rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, we come to verse 3. Uh, interesting phrase here talking about the book of life. What is the book of life? I like what one writer called it. He said it's the, the role of the citizens of the heavenly kingdom. When the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. Exactly. That's kind of, I think that's maybe where they get that idea. But uh, this this book of life shows up all over the Bible. It's in the book of Exodus, 32, mm -hmm. verse 32, book of Daniel, 12, verse 1, yep. Revelation 3, verse 5, 13, yep. verse 8, 17, verse 8, yep. uh, and uh, I think maybe a couple other places. But um, yeah, that's that's my take on it. What do you think? Yeah, this is both an Old Testament and New Testament concept, as you mentioned in those references. There are several books, as mentioned in these uh, you know ideas here, several books which contain every good deed and bad deed for each person who's ever lived. You get this idea in Daniel 7.10 and in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And these deeds are taken into account for one's judgment. And uh, that, to me infers that there are varying degrees of punishment and reward based on what's in your book of deeds. But there's only one book of life, Nick, and it belongs to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and inside the book of life are the names of those who are saved and thus declared righteous by the blood of the Lamb, and that's in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. So two different types of books. And that goes into our eschatology, it goes into our uh, Christology, it goes so, into our ecclesiology. Follow-up question, um, they didn't have a pope in Rome when Clement wrote first. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> how about verse 4, Alex? Um, uh, Paul there, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Uh, why does Paul have to tell these Christians to rejoice so much? Yeah, rejoice and joy seem to be the key words in this entire letter, perhaps mentioned more than any other word. And I would say that since Paul is suffering for Christ, and he reminded the Philippians that they too are called to suffer for Christ, chapter 1, verse 29, it makes sense that you really wouldn't feel like rejoicing in the midst of suffering. And that would be all the more reason to reinforce uh, this idea that the way to keep persevering and the way to keep living in a manner worthy of our calling is to rejoice. By the way, though, this doesn't mean that there isn't a time for weeping. You go back to Romans 12, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But the Christian, the Christian perseveres 
and exhibits a hope that doesn't exist within those ignorant of the resurrection. So we rejoice looking forward to our reward. That's what I think about the continued rejoicing here, Nick. What's your take? Yeah, this is <clears throat> joy is, is especially vital, uh, particularly important, is because we're coming off of this uh, text. You got the context here of verses two and three, where the unity of the body is being threatened by two feuding sisters. And think about that: two people threatening the the unity of the body. Yeah, that that can happen definitely. And so, uh, instead of hurling hate, they should be hollering hallelujah. Okay, that's that's I think the emphasis here, particularly in this context. I know it's all over the book, but um, specifically here, coming off of that, those two feuding sisters and what they should be doing. I think it's a it's a very important uh, thing. Well, Nick, Paul follows up that thought with talking about the Lord is near. Uh, how would that connect, Nick? What 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 does it mean that the Lord is near? In verse five. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at this. Is he talking about proximity? Uh, that he's he's right there with us, or is he talking about the parousia uh, when Jesus comes back for the final time? I think either could be in view here, um, uh, as far as the Lord being at hand. God is present with His people; He's ever mindful of us as we uh, live with gentleness toward all. Let your reasonable be, reasonableness be known to everyone, or your gentleness be known to everyone. Okay, that's how the verse starts. Um, so, so there's that aspect of it, the proximity part, but also, yeah, he's coming back one day, Jesus will come back. And so that should be a motive for our magnanimity and, uh, and for why we are gentle and reasonable in all those things. Um, and also, uh, his nearness, his closeness, uh, perhaps the proximity part, I think that's a stimulus, an incentive for Christians to pray. And he's going to go right into prayer in verse 6 here, right? Uh, as we'll see. So I think either one of those, you'll you'll be all right when it comes to what Paul is, is talking about here with the Lord is at hand. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, so it sounds like you're taking kind of the kaleidoscope uh, both and view, right? All of the above? I mean, I understand it could it probably needs to be one or the other, but... Uh, <laughs> it could be yeah. both. It could yeah, be both. it could be. No, uh, I see more of the proximity one on this one. Um, the Lord is near. I, I think that might be, in this context, referring to his closeness to the church, to the Christian. He's closely watching and paying attention to us. Uh, that does go into how we think of our prayers. Uh, he looks at our deeds. He sees our suffering. He's seeing our rejoicing. He sees our gentleness. And so we live in a manner worthy of the calling we have received uh, because he's watching us. We're his hands and his feet in the world. And uh, as he is, so are we in this world. And he's paying close attention. And so uh, it goes into everything. I mean, it goes into into how we think about our lives now in this moment today, but also in the future. So, I mean, it could be the both and as well. All right. So, yeah, that's going to bring us to our <laughs> tough text. Tough text. Today. And it is indeed a tough text, Nick, verse 6. Right. And it talks about anxiety and being anxious for nothing. And as I thought about the application of this, and especially as we listen to uh, other verses, but also sermons and interpretations on anxiety, and as we uh, step into the 
you know, 21st century where we have an increasing uh, understanding and broader knowledge of uh, psychology and mental and emotional health, this question came to mind, and it's a tough one, so no perfect answer here, but what's the difference, Nick, between biblical anxiety and clinical anxiety? You know, I, I think we have different ways of classifying certain kinds of anxiety today. You know, you've got neurosis, you've got various phobias, social anxiety, things like that. Also, we have new ways of dealing with it, uh, I think particularly of uh, medication. Um, we even have new names for how we deal with it. Uh, I think of cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. But I, I, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think people pretty well have stayed the same throughout generations. And so uh, I think it's the same kind of stuff that cause the same kind of problems today. Anxiety is primarily a uh, mental disorder in which our brain won't slow down or, and uh, we hyper-focus on some fearful situation or event. Um, I find it interesting <clears throat> that very creative people struggle with worry because essentially you have to invent all these different scenarios whereby your sense of identity or self-worth is threatened. And I think that's what it kind of boils down to with anxiety is um, identity and self-worth. Um, for example, there, <clears throat> there's the misbelief or the lie, and uh, Dr. Backus is kind of the guy who came up with misbelief therapy. Um, you can read about it in his book, Telling Yourself the Truth. Um, but uh, the misbelief that a lot of people have is that what people think of me is of vital importance. And so if someone or some group of people were to think bad or ill of me, that would be terrible. And so what happens is a person's brain starts to spin out on that. They start gaming out scenarios where they might think they'll lose face, and then they're trying to figure out, well, how can I avoid those kinds of situations? Otherwise, I'll be dealt this mortal blow. And so uh, that's that's one way in which anxiety can come about. I know there's a number of different ways. Of course, we can talk about how uh, excessive uh, a person's anxiety can be. I suppose uh, you get to a point where it's so uh, excessive to the point where it's uncontrollable. That can become certainly a pathological thing. But um, the question, of course, then becomes, well, okay, how does, how does a biblical cognitive therapeutic approach come into play? Because Paul does say here, don't be anxious about anything. Right? Well, when Paul says that, one, he can call Christians to this because we derive our sense of identity and self-worth not from others, but from God and what, what he says about us. So even if someone were to think less of me, that's not the end of the world because God thinks the world of me. He sent Jesus. This is, here's where the gospel comes into play, right? He sent Jesus to die for me after all, and that makes me of great worth to him. Uh, the other thing that comes into play here, second, is every scenario that we could possibly game out is to be taken to God in prayer. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, when we do that, he supplies every need, everything that we need. He's going to 
Uh, Paul's going to say that later on in verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So when we are faced with a fear-inducing situation, God can be our supply. He can be what we need. So uh, fear in and of itself I don't think is necessarily a sin. What we do, how we respond when we're in a fearful situation, I believe that is what can become uh, sinful. So I want to give just a, a word of encouragement because you may be listening. Uh, you may be struggling with worry with anxiety, with depression. And you may be thinking, gee, I'm, I'm an awful person, I'm a rotten Christian because I struggle with this. Um, the Bible never says that, okay? In fact, many godly people who have loved and feared God throughout church history have struggled with this very same thing. I think of John of the Cross with his dark night of the soul. That came from somewhere. But Jesus himself, he was a man of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. So be of good cheer. You're in good company. You're not spiritually deficient. You're not demon-possessed, though I think there's, there's a spiritual component there uh, to things like this. You're not a hypocrite, all right? Um, the unfortunate thing is that there has become, there's a stigma that's become attached to seeking help with these mental issues. Right. There shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. Seeking help, seeking counseling, that's a good thing. Uh, if you need medication, take your medication in order to get regulated so that you can practice the cognitive tools that you'll learn in a counseling therapeutic situation. Sure. Uh, I want to recommend psychologytoday.com. It's a good resource to find good Bible-based counselors in your area. Just plug in your zip code and they'll come up right there on your computer. So um, that's my take and what I have to say about uh, yeah. anxiety. Alex, what say you? Well, there's a reason it's the tough text because... Uh you had multiple levels to your answer, and that reveals that it's not a simple issue, yeah. and it can't just be brushed aside with a, a quick uh, one-liner. Um, it's There's some thought that goes behind this. Here's where I'm coming from. I think biblical worry and biblical anxiety are rooted in spiritual problems, but clinical anxiety is usually rooted in some sort of physical problem. And so I see more of a difference there between the two. In other words, not all spiritual problems are physical, and not all physical problems are spiritual, though it may manifest itself in that way from time to time. I'm going to give you an example, and this is a memorable story told to me by Dr. Gary Walker. He's an elder at the Sunset Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, also one of the teachers there at the uh, Sunset uh, International Bible Institute. And so I took a few classes from, from him regarding Christian counseling, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. <laughs> And he tells this story of a man who came to him wanting to be baptized. He said, uh, Gary, will you baptize me? And uh, this man had already been baptized like five or six times. And as Gary talked to him, he said, why do you, why do you want to be baptized again? You don't really need to be baptized that many times. And the man kept saying he just didn't feel like it was complete, like it was good enough, like hmm. it was sufficient. And so Gary said, okay, I'll, I'll agree to baptize you upon one condition, because this is Gary. He's a you know professional psychologist, has his uh, PhD in psychology. He says, "Hey, let me run a few tests, and uh, I want to see you know if there might be some other things going on here." So he runs a test to see if this guy might have OCD, and so the man was tested. He did have OCD, and then medication and counseling followed after that. So some time later, Gary followed up and asked him and said, "Hey." 
um, do you still want to be baptized? I promised you, if you still wanted to, after all of the testing, that I would do it. And the man looked at Gary with a smile, and he said, no thanks, Dr. Walker, I'm good. (laughs) And so the physical problem was dealt with, and the spiritual problem went away. But at the beginning, it looked like they were the same, but they weren't the same. Uh, We don't ask people to think more biblically in order to fix their broken arm or their diabetes. Those are physical problems. We're just not used to thinking of mental and emotional problems as physical, Uh, but they can be. They can be. Not always, but they can be. And so therefore, they shouldn't be associated with having a lack of faith or biblical thinking. And I I like the encouragement you gave there at the the end there, Nick, about uh, not despairing or thinking you're a hypocrite or you're a terrible Christian. Um, Just because you struggle with anxiety, there may even be some sort of physical source causing these uh, emotional and mental problems. Have your thyroid tested. Thyroid glands regulate hormones in your body, and those hormones can drastically uh, affect the way you think. So these are not perfect bodies that we have here, folks. These bodies uh, break, and sometimes they start out broken. But we have a resurrection and a new body coming that will be perfect and immortal. So we have to do the best we can with what we have now and rejoice as best we can along the way. So that's my that's my answer for the tough text. Not not necessarily com- uh, in disagreement with Nick, but it's another layer of a very complicated conversation. Well, good night, everybody. There we go. <laughs> See you next week, folks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, verse 9 then. Yeah. Paul says, follow my example in all of these things, everything I've said and teach and done, you've seen in me. And since that includes in this letter, especially um, suffering, how then, Nick, would you tell somebody that following Paul's example of suffering can bring peace? The God of peace will come, will be with you in that. How does that work? Right. And so this is a regular reference. We see this throughout Paul's letters. Um, the one that stands out is 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The context for that one, I mean, the larger context of the Corinthian correspondence, of course, you have 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, where he lays out his litany of suffering and everything that he's gone through. Uh, So that's a larger context. The immediate context, of course, is verses um, 31 through 33 of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so here's the connection that I want to make. Paul rested in the confidence that everything he was doing, even in the suffering that he was experiencing, ultimately brought glory to God. Hmm. And I believe that brought him peace. That brought peace to his mind. Even as he sat in a Roman jail cell, shackled, uh, with uh, uh, only uh, limited abilities and things like that. He still was glorifying God, and that was what brought him peace. That's that's my take. What say you? Yeah, I think that's right. Suffering for Christ's sake brings a sense of purpose, a greater cause, and that greater cause can bring a sense of peace. The God of peace is with you in that because it's a, a, according to a greater purpose. Um, there are even other aspects in which peace can come through suffering. So, uh, in the midst of suffering, if you're looking also toward the interest of others and not just yourself, as Paul mentioned in chapter 2, uh, if you're doing that in the midst of your suffering, 
that can make you feel useful and it can keep your mind off of the pain and that can bring peace while also helping others. Um, another way is that modeling Christian perseverance with rejoicing can attract others to the gospel. People with very little to no hope can see you, see the things you go through, and be attracted to the way in which you're able to persevere through those things. And they might want to wonder, you know, what's the secret, <laughs> right? And that can bring them peace, which would then make you a peacemaker and a minister of peace. Yeah, <laughs> And that circles back into the greater purpose and greater cause, and it kind of feeds into itself. Yeah, you mentioned the secret there, Alex. So let's let's go to verse 12 here. Right. Where Paul says, in every in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Alex, what's the secret that Paul's learned? Yeah, well, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right, you'd be watching TV and you'd see this commercial for the secret. Right. And it'd have this picture of uh, melted red wax with a stamped S on top of it covering this uh, ancient looking book that if you had access to it you could open up and you could know the secrets of being successful being happy being healthy and of course you know it's uh it's the power of positive thinking right thank totally yeah think good things and good things will happen to you that's right no that's wrong that's wrong <laughs> this is a cultic pop culture secret scam uh, nonsense. If you believe, if you really believe in that, if anybody really believes that, if you think good things, good things happen to you and, and bad things happen to you because you're not putting out enough positive energy into the universe, go ahead, go ahead and tell a molested child that they didn't put out enough positive energy into the universe and that's why they were hurt. Go Oof, ahead and tell them that. Man. Paul's message is one of being content in the midst of of suffering, not to prevent suffering, not to bring balance to the cosmos, not to put positive energy out into the universe. That's Eastern mysticism, and it's wrong. So whether rich or poor or somewhere in between, Paul learned to be content, and contentment is the secret. And that's, you know, such a, as you were talking, I was thinking, man, that's some of that stuff, you know, take that Oprah, take that Eckhart Tolle, but also some of that Eastern mysticism has seeped into certain strains of Christianity. I think of, I mean, Joel Osteen, that's basically his whole shtick. I mean, that's that's his theological outlook is power of positive thinking with God sprinkled in for good measure, you know. <clears throat> it's not the whole picture. It isn't. And you were right in a word, the secret is contentedness. Uh, he goes on there, the rest of verse 12, um, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Uh, he says earlier in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. It's verse 11, I believe, which gives us uh, the connective tissue for this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There it is. Uh, it's to be satisfied um, with not just what you have, but satisfied with God, and to enjoy Him, and to delight in Him, uh, and that's ultimately what brings Paul his contentedness, uh, his contentment is is God. So, well, Nick, at verse thirteen, then he follows it up and says, "I can do all things, all things through Him who strengthens me." Nick, what exactly does Paul mean by "I can do all things"? What all things? Well, obviously, he meant that you can dunk a basketball or chuck a baseball or pigskin a quarter mile. That's right. Um, <clears throat> obviously, all things can't be 
everything because everything would by necessity include sin and God would not enable us to sin. That's not what he's talking about. So so the all things, the, the scope of the all things clearly must be limited to something. And so I'm persuaded that this refers to Paul's service, his ministry for uh, Christ. Passage that came to mind uh, was what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, to his ministry. So the emphasis is not on Paul's innate ability or his skill or anything like that. The emphasis is upon God's power through him in those specific situations that he just mentioned. For example, in plenty or in abundance, rich or poor, whatever it is, um, he <clears throat> is sufficient for the task because uh, God has so strengthened him for that service. So uh, that's my take. What say you? Well, Nick, uh, running a marathon isn't sinful, and I've never run one before. So uh, even though I haven't practiced running in years, I think I'll go run a marathon tomorrow because I know I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, this verse, of course, <laughs> isn't going to help me do that. It is probably one of the most abused verses applied out of context to whatever lofty goals we set for ourselves in the 21st century. Uh, it's not to make anybody feel bad for thinking of this verse in that way. Uh, it, it's just a common mistake. And the only bad part is that if you don't look more carefully, you'll miss out on the real power of this verse. The real power of this verse, the, the Paul saying that he can do all things, uh, that is, he can be content. He can persevere. He can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. All of those things through Christ who strengthens him. All things refers to all life situations that require contentment. Hmm. And that's, I mean, <clears throat> it, it, that's the contextual definition of all things. That's what I think. Well, let's, uh, let's look at verses 15 and 16 here. Uh, where Paul, he he brings us in close. He talks directly to the Philippians. You yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Uh, so, Alex, in what ways did the Philippians giving and receiving help Paul? Okay, this is really exciting, so... Follow me as we trace this out. All right. All right, here we go. Philippi is in Macedonia. That's the region that Philippi was located in. Uh, that's modern-day Greece. So Paul brings the gospel to Macedonia, and he starts in Philippi. That's Acts chapter 16. So while in Macedonia, after he goes to Philippi, he then goes on to Thessalonica, then Berea, and then Athens. So then, after Athens, Paul goes south to Corinth, which is located on a landmass called Macedonia, or I mean, called Achaia. So south of Macedonia is this landmass uh, called Achaia, and on that was Corinth. And it was there that he did some tent making while he was preaching, right? So that's where he met Aquila and Priscilla, and uh, he probably needed some money. So he was making tents. But check out Acts chapter 18, verse 5. It says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, 
solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What happened? What happened? Paul stopped making tents because he got money from the Macedonians, which allowed him to completely be devoted to the word. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 through 9, talking to the Corinth, uh, you know, the church of Corinth, where he was when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So go back to Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul says that even while he was still in Macedonia, in the region, just down the road at Thessalonica, the Philippians were already sending Paul money for his supplies, and they kept on sending it. So the giving of the Macedonians, mentioned in uh, in 2 Corinthians, it was from the Philippians, and it was from the churches in Philippi alone. I mean, that's that's incredible. I look at that and say, wow. <laughs> I mean, this this is how the giving and receiving helped him. And so uh, it's important because sometimes in a practical sense for ministry, we think like, oh, you know, we should just all be tent makers. But no, Paul wasn't just a tent maker. He did it when he needed money. But when he had money, he didn't make tents. He devoted himself completely to the word. Yeah, that's that's those are good historical connections. Really ties the whole narrative together, and and helps supply some of the backstory for these verses. Um, so the the word for me when it comes to the help that the Philippians uh, gave was uh, it was financial. Right. This is financial help, um, and literally the way verse sixteen ends is both once and twice. Right. Uh, once and again. Right. So the Philippians sent Paul what was needed, uh, the supplies that were necessary for him to maintain his work, and even <clears throat> to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, even to cease his tent making and, and devote himself fully to uh, ministry and service. So, and I, and I do want to also say, and it may be cliche, but it's true, they supplied his needs, not his greeds. That's right. And so... Um, <laughs> Uh, so they, yeah, there's... Speaking there's of, a, if you guys want to donate to my Patreon account, uh, <laughs> right. I do need a jumbo jet in order <laughs> to right. make my preaching rounds. Uh, we have a global gospel to spread, and uh, if I'm going to go global, I need a, a jumbo jet, so go ahead and... Gospel and gone global. Send a little little donation my way, you know. I have faith. I have faith God can do all things through image strengthens me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All What's right, next? Man. Let's see. Verse 17. Okay. Yeah. Paul says, I don't seek um, the, the, the gift itself, but I seek the credit which goes to your account. What account is Paul talking about in verse 17? Is this some sort of spiritual bank account? You know, financial terms dominate this passage, and yet there's a spiritual component to our giving. Uh, this uh, you make the connection in your Bible to Proverbs eleven and verse twenty five here as well, which says, "Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered." So, what we give not only uh, helps the receiver, the one who's getting it, 
but we benefit from this as well. And so I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about here is uh, that when it comes to this account or this credit, um, yeah, there there is some kind of spiritual accounting that's taking place here where the blessing gets passed all around, I guess is the best way to say that. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Jesus does say it's better to give than, than to receive. And um, usually we take that to mean there is this uh, internal satisfaction that comes from service and from giving. And I agree, there is. I think, though, there is also a reward in the afterlife. And I'm going to keep hitting on this every time I see it in the text because I think it's true. Our salvation, first of all, it's secure. But our deeds go before us, preparing for us an inheritance, preparing for us a transformation of body. You don't believe me? Go back to chapter 3. We will be immortal rulers of the cosmos, and to what degree depends on the deeds in your account. I think there's a spiritual account, a book of deeds, which is uh, written down for you. So don't forget, there are two types of books, uh, the book full of our deeds and the book of life. Jesus wrote our name in his book of life, but we're still writing our own books as we live each day, spurring each other on to good deeds. That's what I think. How about the next verse, verse 18? Paul says, um, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Alex, why does Paul describe their giving as a fragrant aroma? Yeah, I think this uh, definitely has some Old Testament imagery and roots going into it. Even before the Levitical sacrificial system, Genesis 8.21 says Noah sacrificed right after they got off the ark. It uh, rose up before the face of God, and it was a soothing aroma. This language continues on in the Levitical sacrificial system. Here's the bottom line. When the worshiper offers the right kind of sacrifice and the right with the right kind of heart, you could offer the right sacrifice but with the wrong heart, and it wouldn't smell good. But if it was with the right heart as well then that sweet smell of obedience and trust would rise up before the face of God, and he would say, Mmm, Nick, you smell good. You smell good. What well, do you think, I do. Nick? I use Old Spice. But, um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned the Levitical sacrificial system, and I think the, the Old Testament sacrifice that's the background here is what's called the thank offering or the peace offering, and uh, you can read more about it. Leviticus 7, verses 12 through 15. It's interesting because, you know, I, th- I think about the Philippian congregation. It was probably a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Mm-hmm. And this congregation, they would have come from different places spiritually, offering different sacrifices. You know, the Jew under the Torah and the Gentile probably would have been pagan sacrifices. Yeah. Nevertheless, I think everyone would have latched on to the ritualistic language of sacrifice here sure. and, and how their contribution to Paul was like that, but now it's to the one true and only God. Right. And and you're right. To the, it's, it's very anthropomorphic, but in, the, in other words, attributing human characteristics to deity. But yeah, this sacrifice is as if God has a nose with nostrils and the whole olfactory senses and all that, and he can take in and imbibe the the sweet aroma of this. Right. Well, verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Alex, talk to us about the riches in glory. What are riches in glory? What kind of needs do these riches supply? 
Okay, so this is a conceptual link I saw in chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 6, verses 13 through 14, and verse 19. So our prayers for, uh, we, okay, verse 6, we pray for everything we need, right? Supplication with thanksgiving. So be anxious for nothing, offer instead everything up to God in prayer. That's verse 6. So how does God answer that prayer? You go to verses 13 and 14, and God answers that prayer through other Christians, like the Philippians have done for Paul by providing for his needs. And then, go to verse 19, God supplies the Philippians with their needs. So, are, is the supplying process then, is it purely physical? That's what I was thinking about. The supplying of the needs doesn't always mean that God plans on giving the Philippians more money through somehow, uh, some means, so that they can keep giving to Paul. That may happen, it may not. I don't think that's what this is saying. In other words, it's not the health and wealth version of God's got a bigger shovel than you, so as you shovel your money out to other people, God's shovel, God's shoveling his money back to your way, with, but his shovel is bigger, so uh, as we give to others, we get richer. Uh, I don't think so. That could happen, but I think the riches that God returns to the Philippians, who are the givers in this case, are riches and glory, but if you're going to say that, you have to answer, what is glory? Glory can be a couple of different things, but here's my best guess based off of the whole book of Philippians. Go back to chapter 3, verse 21, which says, The Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. The body of his glory. Glory is another way of talking about um, the glorious body that Jesus has that we will also likewise have. So the riches of glory that God returns is our transformation in the resurrection, our new bodies. These riches in glory supply for the need of a new body in the resurrection. And if uh, you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 42, it talks about how not all glorious bodies have the same degree of glory. So there are differing levels of glory. The Philippians were investing in Paul, which in turn will give back to them dividends in the resurrection as they get rewarded their new bodies. The more they provide, the more glorious their new bodies. That's the conceptual link I, th I think is possibly being put forward here. Well, <clears throat> crumb, I was going to go a health and wealth gospel on you, but I guess that's wrong. <laughs> well, Nick, uh, we're here towards the end of the book, and he's giving his greetings uh, at the very end. He talks about Caesar's household. Now, this, this goes into what we talked about in chapter 1. As Where's Paul? When did he write this? Where is he when he's writing? Verse 22, where, where exactly is Caesar's household? Does this help us here? Yeah, my, my read of this is that Caesar's household refers uh, not necessarily to the royal family, but to the whole imperial establishment. And that would include palace officials, secretaries, treasurers, the list goes on and on. The family is certainly uh, not excluded from that, so they're part of that as well. Uh, it's interesting, William Barclay notes that the very center of the empire and those in highest positions had been impacted by the gospel. Uh, that's, to me, that's, I mean, think about it. It'd be, it, the way I think Paul might write it today would be uh, the whole White House has heard the gospel. Um, 
Caesar, by the way, at the time of this writing, is Nero. He's a man described by some as half beast and half devil. So this guy was a monster, uh, very, very sinful dude. He was a sensual murderer who had turned the throne into a seat of filth. And yet, even here, people in his administration who had heard, uh, they'd heard and obeyed the gospel. So uh, that's my read of Caesar's household. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, as mentioned in podcast uh, episode on Philippians 1, this language, I think, points to Paul being in Rome, where he's imprisoned. He's writing this letter, and this would be in first imprisonment. Uh after he's released, he'll resume his travels. He sincerely expected to see the Philippians again face-to-face. He'll do that. He'll make his way over to Spain. He'll come back. He'll get arrested again. And it's in his second Roman imprisonment that uh, Nero will have him beheaded. And that'll be in the mid-60s, so maybe that puts this letter in the early 60s. But, uh, yeah, Nero was incredibly wicked. Uh, the, the historical details and accounts that we have of what Nero did to Christians is um, stomach turning. I mean, it'll it'll make you want to vomit. It is so twisted and demonic. Yeah, he was a bad dude. Yeah, and, but that's, I mean, it's got a plethora of writings in, in the writings of Josephus, Tacitus, uh, those historians fill us in on how, how cruel and the extent to how terrible Caesar, Nero, persecuted the christians um but apt an apt point to prepare them ahead of time if the timing is right to prepare them ahead of time for that impending persecution right the letter philippians about suffering and rejoicing well nick uh, verse 23 last verse of the book finishing up philippians 4 he says uh, grace be with your spirit what does paul mean by your spirit in verse 23 yeah, and it's interesting because there's a couple of good connections here um, because the, the book ends as it began. Begin, it began with grace, it ends with grace. And this grace reaches into the inner being of the church itself. It's interesting. Your spirit, it's singular. Um, so the truth of divine unmerited favor flowing into the body of Christ would serve as a capstone of joy in Christ's church in Philippi. That common theme of joy running throughout. I mean, I think all this stuff kind of meets here in this last verse of the book. Um, so that's, that's my take on it. What about, what, what, what say you? Yeah, digging into the language a little bit. You're right. Spirit is singular. Uh, the your there is plural. So your right. is all y'alls, all y'alls spirit. And so I saw three choices here. Um, he could be, it'd be another way of saying the, the spirit or the inner man of each individual person at the Philippian church. Uh, grace be with you and your inner man, each one of you. Um, ver, uh, the second option is the, the singular spirit of that congregation uh, in other words, it could be talking about a spiritual being, as in an angel, a guardian angel of the congregation. Uh, you get that from Revelation. Each angel has, each church uh, from the letters of Revelation has an angel. So like a, angel. a capital S, right? Yeah, right, right. So an angelic spirit um, of that congregation may grace uh, be with your spirit. Um, third option here is that 
he means spirit as an attitude. So the singular attitude and oneness that they have, that they were encouraged to be united in regarding their faith. Uh, chapter 127, standing firm with one spirit and one mind. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, united in spirit with the same mind, love, spirit, and purpose. So I probably out of those three options, lean towards number three, the singleness of attitude that they were to have and share with one another regarding their perseverance, their faith, their love, and purpose. Um, all y'all's spirit, your singular goal to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's Philippians chapter 4. Well, uh, do we want to do a quick wrap-up, wrap-down of the whole thing, just takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. Nick, what are you okay. taking away from the book of Philippians? So the dominating theme here is joy. Um, we can have joy. I mean, I, th- I think that's that's the positive uh, thing about this letter and uh, something we can, we can latch on to. It's going to come through having contentment in all situations. Um, peace, I believe, will flow from this joy. Um, this joy comes from knowing Christ. In other words, you can't find it anywhere else. You can't find it in the world. Uh, it only comes from Christ and ultimately depend upon Him uh, for His strength. So whatever we're going through, and I know we, we talk a lot about suffering and hardship. I mean, it can be you know, we're, we're su- we talked about anxiety today. You're suffering, you're struggling with anxious thoughts and, and feelings of worry. Um, we could even expand that. You know, I, I mentioned depression as well, which I think flows from some of that. Um, listen, whatever, whatever we're experiencing, whatever our circumstances may be, um, the, the positive word from Paul and really from the Holy Spirit to us today is we can have joy and it's the devil who wants to take that away from us. I believe it's the devil who, well, speaking, using him as a, as a stand-in for the whole spiritual forces of darkness, sure. he wants to rob us of our joy. Uh, all of them do. And yet we can rest in Christ and we must rest in Christ so that we can experience joy. We can experience peace that surpasses all understanding. It's going to come from Christ living in us, uh, the hope of glory. So that's my final word. What about you, Alex? What do you have to say? Yeah, what I'm taking away is that uh, whatever's happening here to you on earth, this is temporary. It's uh, not going to be forever. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a resurrection, and that's our hope. That's our focus. And so uh, you are the sons of God. You are the uh, inheritors of salvation, of the whole world, of immortality, of a body that won't hurt or be imperfect any longer. And you just have to hang in there. You hang on, and you hang on together with other Christians. And uh, you will be... Uh, rewarded in the end so let's just keep spurring each other on and let's keep going it's this is temporary rejoice we're almost to the end i think that that's what i'm taking away with philippians i believe that's going to do it for this episode of sword play we want to invite you if you haven't already done so go on to uh, itunes go into the itunes store go into the google play store search for sword play there Uh, You'll find uh, a number of the episodes there. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about this podcast. 
And if you have any questions, send them to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, for our next podcast, which will be two weeks from now, uh, we're taking a break, Thanksgiving week, we will uh, likely jump into the Apocrypha Part 2. So remember Apocrypha Part 1, we looked at the uh, additions to the Book of Daniel. And uh, Apocrypha Part 2, we'll jump into another writing considered apocryphal or deuterocanonical, and we'll see what there is there that we have to learn um, that can help us as Christians today. Interesting stuff. Probably nothing, I'm sure. (laughs) uh... (laughs) Well, we'll see. Uh, um, For amusement, if nothing else, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, it'll be good. It'll be good. Okay, well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sword Blade.